Well, as we again um, think about the glorious news of the gospel, um, let's just bow our heads and pray together and just encourage you in the quietness of your heart this morning to just say something as simple as, Lord, teach me. Open my eyes that I may see and behold the glory of Jesus. And Father, would you use your word, may the Holy Spirit who wrote it empower it now, speak to our hearts, accomplish the good work that you have sent it to accomplish this morning in us. Open the eyes of our heart that we may see the beauty and the glory of Christ. Open the ears of our heart that we may hear and move our wills by the power of your Spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We've been going through a six-week series entitled The Bridge to Eternal Life. And as I've mentioned each week, I've decided to do this series because I want it to be a gospel refresher for us. I want us to be reminded, as Peter says, we need to be reminded. I also want to make sure that we understand what is of first importance in our doctrinal system, quote-unquote, or whatever you want to call it, in what we believe of first importance is the gospel. Um, but also I want to give you a practical tool, something that hopefully will be simple uh, for you to use in telling others of Christ. The concept of the bridge to eternal life really flows from what Jesus says in John 5 and verse 24, which draws attention to this chasm that is between us and God. Um, scripture says that we have sinned and this has created a chasm between the holy God who created us and we who are sinners. And we, as a result of our sin, inherit eternal death unless there is a way for us to bridge the gap to get to God who offers us eternal life. And Jesus says in John 5, verse 24, these really important words. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does, he does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So as we think about who God is and who we are, which is what we've been doing um, the last few weeks, God is holy and God is loving. God is separate from sin and therefore makes him separate from sinners like us. And yet the scripture says that God is loving. And that is God took the initiative to reconcile us to himself, to do all that was necessary to save us from the penalty of our sins. We, on the other hand, are not holy. We are sinful. And we are also helpless. That means that in our sinfulness, <clears throat> which we are born into, but then we also manifest, at very young age, we make it very clear that the world is all about us and we want everybody to bow down and serve us. And that's just part of our sinful nature. But we're also helpless. In other words, <clears throat> we cannot save ourselves. Our sin problem is far too deep 
for any religion to take care of. We don't need religion. We need a rescue. We need a rescue from the rescuer. And though we are helpless and cannot get to God, we really work overtime to try. We try to work our way to heaven. We try to buy our way into God's presence or God's favor. We think that if we can just be a good person, that someday then God will accept us. Or we go through all kinds of religious rituals, things that we have been taught perhaps from birth on, things that we are led to believe will one day grant us favor in the eyes of God. And yet Scripture makes it very, very clear that none of us can ever be saved by works of righteousness, which we have done. But Titus 3.5 says, salvation is according to God's mercy. It is God's great mercy that saves us. And the mercy of God and the grace of God has been manifested most supremely, most beautifully, in the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. And he is the only bridge to God. And so the only way to get to God is through Jesus Christ, his son. God sent his only begotten son so that we may have the one and only way into his presence. Last week, we began looking at who Jesus is, and we'll finish that up this morning. So last week, we we thought about Jesus as Lord, that he is Lord. He is the creator. He is the supreme authority. He is the sinless Lord, and he is also then the sufficient Savior. But when we thought about his lordship, we realized that in the book of Romans, Jesus' lordship is part of the gospel. In other words, the good news came to us through Jesus our Lord. If Jesus was not Lord, he could not have been our Savior because we need a sinless Savior. We need a divine rescuer. We don't just need the leader of a new religion. It also means that Jesus has the authority to break the grip of sin in our life, and then to give us eternal life. Scripture says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We also thought about how Jesus as Lord means that we need to respond to his authority, that when we confess him as Lord, when we come to him as Lord and Savior, there is a sense in which we are surrendering to him in the sense that we understand that we are now under the authority of a new master, that sin is no longer our master. And this this is something we grow in, obviously. Um, When we come to know the Lord Jesus, we don't know uh, all that he is for us. But there is a fundamental change in the posture of our heart that the Holy Spirit accomplishes so that then when we begin to hear the word and we begin to understand what Jesus as Lord requires of us, we then submit and we follow him. And that is how we then grow as believers. And so it means that Jesus is Lord, that is his position, but it also means then that we are called to yield to that authority. As Romans 14, 9 says, for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the living and the dead. 
So Jesus did not simply die on the cross and raise from the dead to give us heaven, to save us from our sin, to put a get-out-of-hell-free card in our back pocket. He died and rose again, Scripture says, to be Lord, to be Lord of the living and of the dead. And so God is so gracious to receive us as we are, as sinners, we come to him just as we are, not trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, not trying to impress him, but we come as broken, humble sinners to him. We receive the gift of eternal life, and then he begins this new work in us that Philippians 1.6 says he is going to continue until we see the day of Jesus Christ, as we learn to functionally live under his Lordship. So Jesus is Lord. You don't make him Lord. That's his position. But we grow in what it means to live functionally under his Lordship. And so we thought about that a lot last week. What does it mean that Jesus is your functional Lord, that he has authority over you? And it's so important that we understand who Jesus is because there are many, many people who say, well, I believe in Jesus. And yet, they question God's word. They question whether or not the Bible is the word of God. They even perhaps deny the Bible, but they say, well, you know, I, I still have Jesus as my savior. But the question then is, well, what Jesus do you have? What Jesus are you believing in? Because the Jesus of the Bible is the son of God. The Jesus of the Bible is both Lord and Savior. So let's think this morning then about Savior. What does it mean that Jesus is Savior? Well, let's again go to the book of Romans. We'll go to chapter 3. And we're going to notice three marvelous truths about Jesus being the Savior of sinners. First, we're going to look at Romans 3. In verses 21 through 26. And here we notice that Jesus as Savior means that he became God's propitiation, that is, the mercy seat of God, by offering his own blood. Let's look at uh, these verses, and then I'll, I'll explain to you what that, that fancy word means, propitiation. It's such an important word to understand because it explains the completeness of the Lord Jesus' work for us on the cross of Calvary. It happens to be also, I think, my favorite theological word. It is so rich with meaning. But let's just pick it up here in Romans 3, verse 21, and then we'll talk more about what this means. Uh, Let's go back up to uh, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So rules and regulations and religious rituals can never justify us before God. They can never save us. And neither can trying to keep God's law as good as God's law is We are flawed at the very core of our being, and we cannot keep it. But through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So through God's law, we see how gloriously holy he is and how sinful we are and helpless and incapable of keeping his law. So God did something glorious and wonderful, and here is the good news. But now 
the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So God did something apart from the law, and yet it's something that the law and the prophets were predicting, they were foretelling of. And that is this, that the righteousness of God would come to us as sinners through faith, not through keeping the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. In other words, it doesn't matter how you've been brought up. It doesn't matter what family you were born into. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what country you were born in. All that matters is that we understand that every one of us is a sinner who needs God to save us because we cannot save ourselves. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have sinned. We were born with a sin nature. We have been manifesting that sin nature all our lives. And no matter how good we have tried to be, we still fall short of the glory of God. And yet something wonderful happens when we come to Christ. We are justified, verse 24, that is, declared righteous by God, and this is a gift. We are justified by His grace as a gift, not the result of works. Good works, human works, religious works, whatever kind of works you want to think of. We are justified only by the grace of God, which is a gift that comes to us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, our sin was so serious, no self-help program could have changed it, couldn't change our nature, and no religion could ever undo our sinfulness. So God took it upon himself to do for us in the person of his Son that which we could never have done for ourselves if given 10 trillion lifetimes and more to try. How did he do this? He put Jesus forward, verse 25, as a propitiation by his blood. Well, that word propitiation refers to the mercy seat. It actually comes from the word that is used in the Old Testament to speak of the mercy seat, which is the place where the wrath of God was fully appeased, fully satisfied by means of an acceptable sacrifice. If you're familiar with the Old Testament tabernacle, then you've heard this phrase before, the mercy seat. But if you're not, let me just quickly summarize what the mercy seat was. The mercy seat was the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. And if you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant, well, you might have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, and so you have a little bit of an idea that there is this Ark covered in gold. Well, that's a biblical object, okay? Um, Not saying that... the The movie was biblical, but it was based upon this amazing thing that God told Moses and the people to make, the Ark of the Covenant. Well, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. And once a year, only once a year, the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies 
through the veil and offer on that mercy seat to sprinkle blood for his sins and the sins of the people of God. That was done on the Day of the Atonement. And it's called the mercy seat because on that day, all of God's people received the mercy of God and saw the mercy of God visually displayed as fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifices and made God's presence known over the ark. So when we come then to the New Testament, the mercy seat is the Lord Jesus Christ. God provided his own mercy seat. He didn't say to us, well, you got to make your own mercy seat. He didn't give instructions for us to make a mercy seat. He said, I will provide the mercy seat, the ultimate mercy seat that that Old Testament one was a picture of. And I will give to you my son. And notice what God did then. He put forward Jesus as a propitiation, a satisfaction, an atonement, an appeasement of wrath by his blood to be received by faith. So Jesus and his work is to be received by us through faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that's an interesting comment that Paul makes. It was to show his righteousness. I mean, we would immediately think, well, the mercy seat, if that is a picture of Christ, if that's a picture of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, where he died for our sins, he shed his blood for us, then I would think that would be a demonstration of his love, which it is. And you know that if you've been here the last few weeks. But Paul says, in this case, it's a demonstration of his righteousness. Well, why is that? Well, because of this chasm between us and God. There is this chasm that we cannot bridge on our own, which means then either we have to change or God has to change, which, by the way, God doesn't change, or God has to provide the way for us to get to him. Why is that necessary? Well, because God is too holy to just wink at sin. He couldn't say, yeah, I know that Touches guy and, and all those people at Cornerstone and, and all those Mayfield Heights people and all those Cleveland people, and all those people all over the world. Yeah, I, I know they're so sinful, but oh my word, when I think about them, I just get goosebumps and I just love them so much that I just can't be without him. I, that I can't live without them, so I'll just pretend they're not as sinful as they really are. Now, why can't God do that? And I say can't for a reason. There are things, there are things God can't do. Chief of which is, he cannot act in a way that is contrary to his nature and his character. He is holy and he is righteous. And therefore, 
sin has to be punished. And so he either has to punish all of us or, praise God, he decided to punish his son in our place and then say to all sinners, if you will look to Jesus, you will be saved. So the cross was not only a demonstration of the love of God, which it was, it was the greatest demonstration of the love of God, but it was also a demonstration of the righteousness of God because Jesus offered himself as that required blood sacrifice. And as the Lamb of God, he was put to death for our sins. And that was a manifestation of the righteousness of God, that God is righteous and he must punish sin. And so then we as sinners, there are two, only two options. We either pay for our own sin throughout this life and then through eternity in the place the Bible calls hell, or we humbly come before God understanding that he has already paid for it for us in Christ and we receive that gift from him. Well, those are the only two choices because sin has to be paid for because he's righteous. So that's what propitiation means. It means that Jesus became that atonement, that appeasement of the wrath of God. You might think of it this way, that while Jesus was hanging upon that cross and when three hours of darkness spread over the land, Jesus absorbed all of God's wrath that was meant for us. He absorbed all of the wrath of God that was meant for every sinner who would one day trust in him, us, by his grace. That is amazing. And I say it that way because only believers can claim this. Only believers can claim this. You have to know Christ to claim that this is true for you. This is Jesus. He is Savior. Well, there's a second way that we see him as Savior, and that is found in chapter 5. And that is that Jesus as Savior means he was condemned in our place. Some of this is a bit repetitious of what we just went through, but Paul says it a little different way, and so I think I should say it a little different way. In Romans chapter 5, we've talked about this chapter before in this series. It's a contrast between Adam, the first man, and Christ, who is called the second Adam. Jesus lived the life that Adam was intended to live but was not able to. Jesus lived that sinless life. Why? Because he not only was 100% man, but he was also 100% God. And so there's this contrast going back and forth in this chapter between Adam, who brought sin into the world, and that sin results in judgment. And that judgment ultimately results in condemnation. And we are all born in Adam. And so that's our natural inheritance. 
But then, Paul says, Christ came, the second Adam came. Jesus didn't bring sin into the world. He brought righteousness. And this righteousness results in justification to all those who believe, which then results in eternal life. See the contrast? And so Jesus was condemned in our place. Uh, Pick it up with me in Romans 5, verse 15. But the free gift, so it begins with a word of contrast, but, but the free gift in contrast to what Adam brought into the world, which was sin, judgment, condemnation, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, Adam's, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now notice how many times this eternal life This forgiveness, this righteousness that is imputed to us when we believe. Notice how many times it is called a gift. Verse 15, the free gift, the free gift by the grace. Verse 16, the free gift, and then the free gift following many trespasses. And then verse 17, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. If you have any shred of hope in your mind and heart that you can somehow work your way to God, I hope that those three verses just shatters that out of your mind forever. I mean, this ought to settle it. This is God speaking. And he says, No matter how hard we try to bridge that gap, we can't. And so he bridged it for us in giving us his son. What does it mean that he was condemned in our place? He was punished. He was put out, so to speak. That's why on the cross, Jesus claims Psalm 22 for himself. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you turned your back on me for the first time in all of eternity? We, Father and Son and Spirit, we have enjoyed forever this intimacy of fellowship and friendship, and now you have turned your back on me. Why? Well, we know why. Because Isaiah 53 says that at that moment, all of our sins were placed on Jesus. Because God cannot look at sin, he turned his back upon his Savior, his Son, so that he could become our Savior. 
three hours of darkness spread through the land. And I imagine that the darkness was so thick you could not see your hand in front of your face. So dark is sin. But at the end of those three hours of darkness, God ripped the veil of the temple in two to show us that we can now enter into his presence. The earth quaked. And three days later, the sun rose from the grave. That's why then, in chapter 8, Paul can say to us with such great assurance, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we as sinners come to God by faith in Jesus, he puts us into Christ. That means is he unites us with Jesus. These are things I didn't understand when at the age of 19, God, the Holy Spirit, just brought me to a place of brokenness over my sin and recognition of my need for him and then opened my eyes to what Jesus had done for me and gave me new life in Christ. I didn't understand all of these things and there's still so much more to understand. But one thing that's very clear here in this verse is that when you and I came to Jesus for salvation, we, we repented of our works, we repented of our beliefs in thinking we were good enough or could be good enough. We turned from our unbelief, turned from our sin, and we trusted in Jesus. God placed us in Christ. That is, he forever united us with Jesus so that the death of Jesus for sin becomes our death for sin and his resurrection becomes our new life unto God. And that's who we are now. And so tightly have we been united to the Son who is our Savior that for God to condemn us, he would now have to condemn his son a second time, which he won't do. That's how secure we are in Christ. That's why he says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus took care of the sin problem that led to the judgment problem which led to the condemnation problem. And now we who trust in Jesus with simple childlike faith come to him. This is what happens. And then as that new life grows in us, that new life that begins as a seed, that seed of faith in Jesus, that new life that the Spirit places there, grows, then we come to understand more and more truths like verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. See, the problem wasn't with the law. 
the problem was with the helplessness, the weakness of us who could not fulfill the law. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, not in sinful flesh, because Jesus is the sinless Lord, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he, look, condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? The flesh of Jesus. In his body on the tree, as Peter says in old translations. In his body on the cross. In order, verse 4 Here it is again. The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So not only did Jesus die for our sin, but he perfectly lived out the law in our place. And we now are learning how to walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit the spirit that placed this new life within us. Amazing. What grace. There's a third way Jesus is Savior. Chapter 10. Jesus as Savior means he fulfilled the righteous requirements of God's law on our behalf. Just touched on that tiny bit in chapter 8, but look how Paul picks it up again in chapter 10. For Moses writes, verse 5, I'm in Romans 10, verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? What does the gospel say about righteousness? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. What is this word of the faith that we proclaim? Here it is. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. But notice, who's, who saves us? Who is the Savior? Verse 9, it is Jesus the Lord. So again, once again, what are we seeing here? Jesus is both Savior and Lord. You can't cut him in half and say, well, I only want half of him. I'll take the Savior part because that means I'm going to heaven someday, but no way am I going to learn to live under his authority. You've What Jesus do you have, I ask you? Because if that's your thinking, you don't have the Jesus of the Bible. 
you've got the wrong Jesus, and it's time to get the right Jesus, who is both Lord and Savior. He died and rose again to have rightful authority over you and over me. How foolish it is then that every time you and I sin, it's like we're shaking our fist in the face of our Savior, saying, I'll take you as my Savior, but today, this moment, not interested in following you. And we go through that wrestle, that battle, our whole Christian life, looking forward to the day when we shall be delivered forever from the very presence of sin. We have been already delivered from the penalty of sin. That's clear. We are being saved from the power of sin. And one day, we shall be saved from the very presence of sin. Never to have to deal with this old, wretched flesh anymore. Are you looking forward to that day? I'm really looking forward to that day. For the scripture says, verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter your heritage. Doesn't matter your upbringing. Doesn't matter what family you were born into. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who what? Call on him. Call on him. For, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So once again, we see this bridge that only Jesus has provided for us. The only way to God. And there is a required response called what? Faith. The two-sided coin of faith. Repent and believe. Turn away from sin. Turn away from unbelief. Turn away from what you are placing your confidence in this moment. If it's anything but Christ, turn away from that and trust in Jesus. Because just because God has done everything required for our salvation, it doesn't mean that everyone is saved. It doesn't mean that everyone is going to be saved. But what does it say in verse 12 and 13? This comes to those who what? Call on him. You call on Christ to save you. You acknowledge who you are as a sinner who's helpless. And you say, Jesus, save me. For I could never save myself. Thank you for what you did for me on that cross that you became the mercy seat of God for me. You shed your blood for my sin. You rose from the dead. And I, this moment, embrace you. I trust you. 
And I, I ask you to take me, my sin and all that I am, and rescue me. And what's the promise of God? For everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. That's the gospel. That's the truth of God's word. Jesus, the bridge to eternal life. And so, Father, we are just amazed by your grace. We've already been singing of Christ and your mercy and his grace, and we'll sing some more because we could never get over the depth of the love and the mercy and the grace that you have shown to us in Christ, that you've taken on yourself that which we could never do. And by putting your own sinless son to death, you became the just and the justifier of those who trust in him. Thank you for reminding us of these great truths. And Father, would you just, by your spirit, would you apply this most marvelous truth of all to each of our hearts. Wherever we are at with you, you know whether we know you and we've known Jesus as Lord and Savior for a year or 20 years or 50 years or a couple weeks. May the truth of the gospel just enrich us But Lord, if anyone here today is just right on the precipice of faith, would you just woo them with your love and your mercy to embrace Jesus as the bridge, the only bridge to eternal life, that they would call upon the name of the Lord today and be saved. Do whatever you need to do in each of our hearts for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.